Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice and macro research on today's shifting economic and market landscape. Please listen to the important legal information at the end of this podcast. Greetings clients, colleagues and friends of Julius Bear. A warm welcome to the Julius Bear podcast on healthcare. My name is Yaoshin Wong and I'm a member of Julius Bear's Asian Equities Advisory Team. My guest speaker today is Connor McCarthy from Wellington. Connor is a portfolio strategist in Singapore at Wellington and has worked closely with Wellington's global healthcare team for many years. He also has experience as a global portfolio manager and investment director. Welcome, Connor. Hi, Yashin. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, it has been more than 18 months since the pandemic started, and it is no surprise that people are starting to feel better weary. I'm sure we have asked ourselves this question recently. How and when will the pandemic end? Well, this is the exact same question which we will attempt to address in today's podcast. Connor, you and your colleagues at Wellington must be paying close attention to COVID-related developments globally. Could I ask you to bring us up to speed regarding caseloads and progress of vaccine programs thus far? Absolutely. And hi, everyone listening right now. And you're right, Yashin, we have been following this very closely. And to your question, global cases, unfortunately, and as I think most of us know, have been moving tragically in the wrong direction. Uh, the numbers are quite sobering, about four and a half million lives lost globally so far. That's still rising by about 270,000 people every month right now. We've seen about 210 million cases reported globally so far, uh, about 18 million reported on a monthly basis at this point, and that continues to grow. But there's also been an uptick in the number of vaccines administered, which is certainly a positive, 4.7 billion vaccine doses have been injected so far, and with about 1.3 billion of those Yushin administered in just the past month alone. So the pace and scale is clearly moving in the right direction in difficult circumstances. Thanks for the update. Ladies and gentlemen, since the initial phase of trying to find out what exactly COVID-19 is, we have started to see governments around the world adopt different strategies when tackling the virus. There is a camp which aims to eliminate the transmission of the virus. We see countries like Australia, New Zealand and Hong Kong adopt zero-tolerance policy, banning inbound travellers and enforcing strict quarantine requirements whenever clusters are discovered. After repeated lockdowns and reopening, I think these countries are starting to realise that eradicating the COVID-19 virus is going to take considerable resources and time. There is another camp which is getting ready to live with the virus, and Singapore is probably a good example of this. Core to the strategy is to implement vaccine programmes as soon as possible, conduct effective contact tracing and do proper isolation. This is to ensure that the healthcare system will not be overwhelmed as it deals with second and third waves of the virus as they happen. Tellingly, the Singapore government has announced that it will be moving away from reporting details of daily infections, focusing instead on outcomes such as how many patients fall very sick and need intensive care. Connor, we've seen the rise of mRNA technology over the past year. However, we've also heard about some side effects associated with the mRNA vaccines. Does that concern you? Yeah, often misunderstood area. And I just say up front for those with doubts in this regard, the mRNA vaccines are not only proving to be highly effective for the vast majority of individuals against the variants we face thus far, but they're also extremely safe. 
There has been some instance rare of inflammation of the heart for certain patients that's been reported and examined by groups like the US CDC. But the benefits and the safety of the mRNA approaches would appear to far outreach any of the risks. Understood. And with vaccines being rolled out globally, when do you think herd immunity might be reached? This is unfortunately a very tricky one because there are myriad factors involved in determining the outcome. So I'll say up front, I think it seems unlikely that we'll fully eradicate the virus anytime soon and perhaps not for years. With any infection, there are two ways to achieve herd immunity. And one is get a large population of people infected, which is not what we want, or get that population protected through a vaccine. And what we know about the coronavirus thus far suggests that we'd need probably 70-80% of the global population to be immunized in some fashion. We're somewhere in the neighborhood of 24% of the global population vaccinated. Poorer countries are down near 1.5%. So there's a disparity there. So the number depends on many factors in that regard. How rapidly these get out and at what scale. Some positives are that uh, the production of vaccines has grown tremendously. Pfizer, BioNTech, Moderna, AstraZeneca, J&J. You just put those four together alone and you're producing 6.3 billion vaccines this year. That's a tremendous number. And that number is going to jump into 2022, and we have other producers out there as well. So volume will be less the issue, I think, going forward. And then we have to ask ourselves, are they being deployed, getting to the earlier point with bottlenecks and different conditions on the ground that make that more challenging? And there's this other matter of vaccine hesitancy, which is probably one of the more vexing pieces of the puzzle, because you really need to have people want to take the vaccine. And that reticence is leading to higher hospitalization rates, as we've seen, which is a shame. If we vaccinate the world at a slow pace, we also raise the risks of new variants. And some of those will likely not be a threat, but some could be. So the imperative to move quickly is really important. Fortunately, so far, the efficacy of some of the better vaccines, I would say, are, are quite robust. You know, they're seeing ranging from 50 to 90 percent against hospitalization. That's critical. That's great if we get people to get the vaccine, and even better if we move to a phase where boosters are available, because that booster can really change the equation as well. So to sum it up, herd immunity is pretty much an elusive figure at this point, particularly not only the percent, but the timing of that. And I think it's frankly more realistic to think about this in terms of its endemic nature and how we manage it in the coming years. Let's dwell more into virus variants, which are more very topical right now. Right. Data suggests that recent variants of the COVID-19 virus, like the Delta variant, are 50 to 70% more transmissible, though not as fatal. Right. The Delta variant is clearly more concerning relative to prior variants because of its combination of higher transmissibility, as you note, and it has the ability to evade the immune system in some cases. Among the two attributes, I mean, the transmissibility is the greater concern. 60% or so more transmissible than the UK variant that we saw called the Alpha variant, and then two to three times more transmissible than the original strain that we saw back in the March-April period of last year. But fortunately, the Delta variant's ability to evade vaccine-induced immunity is relatively modest, and fortunately, we have vaccines, as we talked about, just to manage that emergence. In fact, the data points to really high efficacy, again, for these mRNA vaccines, in particular against Delta. 
Moderna put some new data out that showed really very strong efficacy around 92 to 93% uh, through the six months after dosing. And the booster of the mRNA types are actually looking pretty strong as well. The titers, antibody titers, following a booster shot are substantially higher after the initial two shots that patients get. So a single booster at six months significantly increased the antibody titers against all existing variants 30-fold, which is an immense jump. And this appears true whether the booster is of a different type than the one you got originally. And patients who have already had COVID boost extremely well too. So the science in a lot of respects seems to be on our side. Agreed. And to echo your previous point, various pharma CEOs have displayed confidence when commenting about efficacy of their vaccines versus these new variants. Companies are also thinking about new generation strategies. New versions of the vaccines will be rolled out if variants which decrease the efficacy of existing versions of the vaccines appear. Every now and then we wonder, when will the world go back to pre-COVID days? Well, I have a thought. If we are programming ourselves to think of COVID-19 as endemic like the flu is, then we should use death rates from the flu as a gauge. The WHO estimates that the flu kills half a million people per year. So far, about 1.9 million COVID-related deaths has been reported in 2021. While this might be sobering to realise that we are far from pre-COVID normality using this metric, the hope is that vaccine programmes continue to be rolled out globally and we will get there eventually. Absolutely. I think practically speaking, a lot of listeners, and certainly I get asked a lot, is when will travel be more normal across the globe. And I expect that more governments will gradually open travel bubbles and the like as vaccine penetration improves. And when pullbacks will be required as risks reemerge, and we've seen that as well. So this is going to be a dynamic process until outbreaks stabilize globally. And once highly vulnerable populations and large percentages of the world's populations are vaccinated, we're going to see continued progress, touch wood. So Global travel, as just one narrow point, will, I think, free up gradually into 2022. Testing would also have a role to play in this scenario. Relatively cheap fast-action antibody tests are readily available over-the-counter and they are easy to administer and get results. That's right. I think if you're able to show that you, hopefully it will turn out that if you can demonstrate that you have active antibodies through a serology test or a vaccine certificate, that will also help in facilitating travel to a higher degree. We'll see how that develops. And again, wide population vaccination and surveillance is going to be critical and is needed really for travel and a lot of both economic and health dimensions to improve. Connor, this is where I have to ask, given everything that we have discussed today, how is Wellington positioned to benefit from expected trends related to the COVID-19 situation and which subsectors should investors pay attention to? Right. People should look forward. In the context of the pandemic, the healthcare industry has absolutely been the white knight in so many ways, from testing to vaccines to therapeutics. I mean, the innovation has been quite striking. It's been decades in development, and I think it's surprised to most people who haven't really had the opportunity to know what's been going on. But at this point, and from an investment perspective, we believe that the COVID-related stocks very often have been bid up considerably yeah. as people have come to recognize these things. And we're currently focused more in areas of new drug developments and areas like cancer treatment. So there's a immunotherapy, immuno-oncology is what it's termed, gene therapy in, in the whole host of areas, and then Alzheimer's, of course, where there's been some positive developments. Immuno-oncology, or IO as it's called, is a great example. 
Seven years ago, there really were no therapies approved. Now it's a $20 billion industry, and we have new treatments that are coming online and being tested. So more types of cancer will be treated much more effectively than historically was the case. And that's a very, very obviously positive health evolution, but commercially very, very much a large market now. And another area is uh, gene therapy, which is a strategy that transfers DNA to a patient's cells to correct a defective gene to treat diseases that would otherwise not be curable at all. And there are thousands of these illnesses with a genetic linkage. So fortunately, there's a new set of treatment innovations in this space that are truly remarkable. I mean, there's one example, Yashin, where there's a, an approved therapy now, just a few years ago it was approved, that can actually bring sight back to children with a specific form of what's called retinitis pigmentosa, which is just a, a terrible cause of blindness. And there are other areas where we're seeing positive improvements, new drugs approved, and there are over, let's say, 300 different trials out there worldwide. Of course, not all of them will succeed, but some likely will. And that will be, for some businesses, obviously a great opportunity. But if I step back a little bit and I think about this just in the most macro of ways, there's just massive demand for healthcare. And it's not going away anytime soon because you have wealth creation that's increasing access to healthcare and consumption of healthcare. And then you also have aging populations in many markets around the world. The age groups above 65-year-olds right now, I think, are 8.5%. That's set to grow to about 17% in the next 25 years. So that's a, quite a tailwind for yeah. drug or, and just general healthcare consumption. So this is what's, I think, positive. Most of your consumption of healthcare happens after your 65 years, about 65 plus percent of your overall lifetime spend of healthcare comes out after the year of 65. Demand is also sticky because it's not optional to most of us. If we can possibly afford healthcare, we will certainly seek it. And more tactically, the reopening is happening in different parts of the world, some of the major economies, for instance, and that's catalyzing healthcare consumption in the near term. You know, we're seeing increased elective surgeries, and we're seeing new drug R&D and trial readouts progress, and that will likely lead to some number of new drug approvals. We've seen quite a few already this year coming from, particularly from small and medium-sized biotech firms. So we're interested in those types of opportunities. And at the same time, by and large, and while there are exceptions, I mean, the large cap names are a little less interesting to us at this point. Some are vulnerable to patent expiries, you know, for drugs that they've had for a long time on their key products. But also some of their pipelines are a little less robust than, than we would like to see relative to the great innovations that I just alluded to. So who wins in that? dynamic. On balance, we say the small and medium-sized biotech companies. It's a selection game. You can't just pick them all, but that's really the area of opportunity that we see. And the share of the pie has been drifting toward those small and medium-sized players over the years, and we think that continues. So it's not hyperbole to say that we're entering a very bright era for healthcare innovation and for demand. So it makes for very interesting investment opportunities. That note, I think it would be a good time to conclude this podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, there's been a rise of virus variants capable of escaping the protection that vaccines provide. As the world inches towards herd immunity, focus should move from number of infections to disease severity. And to that note, data from several countries which are further along their vaccination drive clearly show that vaccines cut hospitalizations irrespective of variants. 
so we would like to end off by urging those who have not gotten their vaccination shot to schedule one as soon as possible. And we at Julius Bear wish you good health and stay safe. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Bear. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Bear, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbear.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. This is a podcast disclaimer. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. The podcast content is intended for information purposes only and does not constitute an offer, a recommendation or an invitation by or on behalf of Julius Baer to buy or sell any securities, security-based derivatives or other products or to participate in any particular trading strategy in any jurisdiction. Julius Baer does not accept liability for any loss arising from the use of the podcast content. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.